Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. My name is Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm your guest host for the week. I am the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, along with my co-author, Mary Jane Woodger. And I get to talk to you a little bit about Official Declarations 1 and 2, right at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Articles of Faith, which are right at the end of the Pearl of Great Price. So let's dive in. Um, Official Declaration 1 and 2 both deal with difficult topics. Uh, Official Declaration 1 deals with the end of plural marriage. Official Declaration 2 ends with the end of the um, race policy on priesthood and temple blessings. And then there's the Articles of Faith, which are just delightful. So let's take a look at Official Declaration 1 and a couple of things you should know about this. Uh, The 2013 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants added in uh, historical background to Official Declaration 1. So just like every revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a little italicized introduction to let you know what's going on. What they added in the 2013 edition of the Scriptures, which hadn't been there before, was an italicized introduction to help you understand what was happening when Official Declarations 1 and 2 were given. And these aren't scriptures themselves, but they are published by the church. They've been correlated, and they're just about the closest thing you'd find to official commentary on both of these controversial practices. So the italicized introduction to official declaration one says, the Bible and the Book of Mormon teach that monogamy is God's standard for marriage, unless he declares otherwise. And then they ask you to see Second Samuel 12, 7 through 8, and Jacob 2, 27 through 30. Uh, both these revelations, especially Jacob 2, state that monogamy is the norm, seems like monogamy is the rule, but plural marriage is an exception that can happen from time to time. There's a number of righteous people in the scriptures, including Abraham and Israel himself, that practice plural marriage, but it does seem like monogamy is the standard. Um, the, the italicized introduction goes on to say, following a revelation to Joseph Smith, the practice of plural marriage was instituted among church members in the early 1840s, see section 132. From the 1860s to the 1880s, the United States government passed laws to make this religious practice illegal. These laws were eventually upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. After receiving revelation, President Woodruff issued the following manifesto, which is accepted by the church as authoritative and binding on October 6, 1890. This led to the end of the practice of plural marriage in the church. So again, make sure that when you're studying these sections, you don't skip over those italicized introductions. That's official commentary from the church on both of these subjects, and it's really, really helpful in understanding what's going on. Now, a little background on the official commentary. Um, The United States Congress began passing laws to outlaw plural marriage starting in the 1860s. Uh, The Republican Party was founded in the 1850s with the twin goals of removing what they called the, the dual relics of barbarism, slavery, and polygamy. And so in 1862, Congress passes the first series of laws intended to make plural marriage illegal. These laws continue to increase in severity until the 1880s when the Edmunds-Tucker Act is passed in 1887, and this puts a serious strain in the church, on the church. The Edmunds-Tucker Act um, disincorporated the church, seized many of its assets, and wound up placing many prominent leaders of the church in prison. The wives and children of these leaders were often uh, suffered the indignity of being subpoenaed to testify in court against family members, at times even their own husbands and fathers, and not to mention other hardships associated with the absence of of their husbands and fathers, often who were essential for providing for the family. Now, it's under these circumstances that 
President Woodruff seeks guidance about what to do. He 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 knows that temple work is near and dear to his heart. He was the first president of the St. George Temple, which is the first temple built since Nauvoo. And it really looks like under this new law, the temples are going to be seized. So President Woodruff, before he um, issues the manifesto praise, he, he writes in his journal on the last day of the year, 1889, uh, commenting on what's happening in the country and how he feels about the things that are happening. One of the things he writes that you can see recorded in his journal from the last day of the year is, thus ends the year 1889, and the word of the prophet Joseph Smith is beginning to be fulfilled that the whole nation would turn against Zion and make war upon her saints. The nation has never been filled so full of lies against the saints as today. So when President Woodruff issues the manifesto, he's got the uh, difficulty of, of wanting to honor the commandment given to Joseph Smith to practice plural marriage, but he's also uh, got the instruction found in the Articles of Faith that we believe in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. You might note that in the manifesto itself, in Official Declaration 1, President Woodruff notes, Inasmuch as these laws have been enacted by Congress forbidding plural marriages, and these laws have been pronounced constitutional by the court of last resort, I hereby declare my intention to submit to those laws and to use my influence with the members of the church over which I preside to have them do likewise. So he just points out that the laws have been passed. The saints didn't feel like the laws would be upheld because plural marriage was part of their religious practice, and they felt like they were protected by the Bill of Rights. However, the laws were upheld by the Supreme Court, the Court of Last Resort, President Woodruff refers to it here, and now he decides that they're going to obey and submit to the law. Now, an important thing to note in studying these sections is that you shouldn't skip um, the uh, explanations below Official Declaration 1, where it says excerpts from three addresses by President Wilford Woodruff regarding the manifesto. You see, Official Declaration 1 is not the revelation. It's a recognition of the revelation and the official declaration that the church was going to change its marriage practices. But down below, President Woodruff does state that what he had received was a revelation from God and that he was commanded by God uh, to do it. If you go down a couple paragraphs, you'll find the second address, which uh, find the paragraph that starts with the Lord showed me by vision. And this is what President Woodruff says. The Lord showed me by vision and revelation exactly what would take place if we did not stop this practice, plural marriage. If we had not stopped it, you would have had no use for any of the men in this temple at Logan, for all the ordinances would be stopped throughout the land of Zion. Confusion would reign throughout Israel. Many men would be made prisoners. The trouble would have come upon the whole church, and we should have been compelled to stop the practice. Now, the question is whether it should be stopped in this manner, or in the way the Lord has manifested to us, and leave our prophets and apostles and fathers free men, and the temples in the hands of the people, so the dead may be redeemed. A large number had already been delivered from the prison house, in the spirit world by this people, and shall the work go on or stop? This is the question I lay before you, the Latter-day Saints. You have to judge for yourselves. I want you to answer it for yourselves. I shall not answer it, but I say to you, that is exactly the condition we as a people would have been in hand if we had not taken the course that we have. Now he goes down a little bit further, says, I saw exactly what would come to pass if there was not something done. I've had this spirit upon me for a long time, but I want to say this. I should have let all the temples go out of our hands. I should have gone to prison myself and let every other man go there, had not the God of heaven commanded me to do what I did do. When the hour came that I was commanded to do that, it was all clear to me. I went before the Lord, and I wrote what the Lord told me 
to write. Now that last phrase, I wrote what the Lord told me to write, is President Woodruff just basically saying, this isn't my word. This is the word of the Lord. So official declaration one is complicated in that it's not a revelation, but it's an acknowledgement that President Woodruff was commanded by God to stop the practice of plural marriage. Of course, this was a difficult choice. And in a lot of ways, it was almost as difficult to end um, the practice of plural marriage as it was to begin the practice of plural marriage. But the manifesto was eventually canonized. It was placed in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1908 and has been seen as the word and will of the Lord uh, since that time. Now, we could walk through the scriptures a little bit that's mentioned in the introduction. For instance, Jacob 2 verse 30 says, If I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things. In other words, the, the scriptures, both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, state that um, monogamy is the regular practice, but the Lord does leave the door open for situations where righteous people like Israel or Joseph Smith or Brigham Young can practice uh, plural marriage. Um, President Woodruff, at this point in time, felt it was important for the saints to obey the laws of the land, and he ends the practice. But you'll notice the careful wording of the manifesto, where he's just about as gentle as he can possibly be, is is meant to um, gently end the practice, too. When President Woodruff introduced the manifesto and sustains it at a general conference of the church, the a general conference in 1890, President Woodruff explains um, at this time, the manifesto only refers to future marriages and does not affect past conditions. I did not, I could not, and I would not promise that you would desert your wives and children. This you cannot do in honor. So the manifesto said two things. Number one, they weren't going to practice any new plural marriages and they would obey the law of the land. But that also left the door open uh, to some people saying, well, what if we live in a country where the law doesn't forbid plural marriage? Is it still okay for us to practice this? At that time, and even still today, there were large colonies of Latter-day Saints in Canada and Mexico, and the practice was still legal there. And so these saints had the question of whether or not they could continue practicing plural marriage. And it appears from the records we have the plural marriage did continue uh, especially in Mexico. So a few years later, in 1904, President Joseph F. Smith issues what's known as the Second Manifesto. The Second Manifesto uh, forbids all plural marriages, regardless of where the saints are living and regardless of whether or not the practice is legal in the countries they were living. It reads um, as follows. Inasmuch as there are numerous reports in circulation, the plural marriages have been entered into, contrary to the official declaration of President Woodruff of September 24, 1890, commonly called the Manifesto, which was issued by President Woodruff and adopted by the Church at its General Conference October 6, 1890, which forbade any marriages violative of the law of the land. I, Joseph F. Smith, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hereby affirm and declare that no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanctioned consent or knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Day Saints. And I hereby announce that all such marriages are prohibited, that any officer or member of the church who shall assume to solemnize or enter into any such marriage, he will be deemed in transgression against the church and will be liable to be dealt with according to the rules and regulations thereof and excommunicated therefrom. So all these marriages were prohibited. Um, and as if to illustrate that this applied to everybody at every level of the church, in the months that followed, two apostles were removed from the Quorum of the Twelve because they admitted that they had performed 
uh, plural marriages. That was John W. Taylor, Matthias Cowley. John W. Taylor was later excommunicated and never came back to the church. Matthias Cowley was restricted from using his priesthood, but he later repented, admitting that he was holy in error. Um, some excommunicated members broke off and formed fundamentalist groups who lived plural marriage after the manifesto, but the church has not sanctioned any living plural marriages since the manifesto. In fact, you might remember a few years ago in General Conference, President Hinckley addressed this question. He pretty bluntly um, upheld official declaration one, and he said, quote, if any of our members are found to be practicing plural marriage, they are excommunicated. The most serious penalty the church can impose. Not only are those so involved in direct violation of the civil law, they're in violation of the law of this church. President Hinckley added, more than a century ago, God clearly revealed unto his prophet, Wilford Woodruff, that the practice of plural marriage should be discontinued, which means that it is now against the law of God. Even in countries where civil or religious law allows polygamy, the church teaches that marriage must be monogamous and does not accept into its membership those practicing plural marriage. So that's kind of the beginning and end of it. Um, President Woodruff says it's a revelation. President Hinckley upholds it as a revelation. In all these cases, plural marriage had served its purpose. It wasn't ended because of government pressure, though I think everybody was honest that that was a factor in them seeking the revelation. It was ended because God commanded them to end the practice of plural marriage, and we don't practice it today. That's the Lord's standard. Now, moving on to official declaration two, official declaration two, as of the 2013 edition of the scriptures, also has an italicized introduction, a historical background. And because this is official commentary from the church itself, I'd say you definitely need to read this. Here's what it says. The Book of Mormon teaches that all are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. That's 2 Nephi 26, verse 33. Throughout the history of the church, people of every race and ethnicity in many countries have been baptized and have lived as faithful members of the church. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, a few black male members of the church were ordained to the priesthood. Early in its history, church leaders stopped conferring the priesthood on black males of African descent. Church records offer no clear insights into the origins of this practice. Church leaders believed that a revelation from God was needed to alter this practice and prayerfully sought guidance. The revelation came to church president Spencer W. Kimball and was affirmed to the other church leaders in the Salt Lake Temple on June 1, 1978. The revelation removed all restrictions with regard to race that once applied to, to the priesthood. So, again, that's the official commentary um, from the church. One of the things that it states uh, is that we do not know the exact origins of this practice. We know when it was instituted. We know it happened in 1852 when Brigham Young was president of the church. But we also know that prior to that time, there are several examples of uh, black men that were ordained to the priesthood. So it was a new policy and something that didn't originate uh, with Joseph Smith, strictly speaking. So let's walk through this and understand it. First of all, there might be some of our listeners out there who remember when this announcement was made in 1978. Um, I'm a little too young to remember it, but uh, I was really moved at hearing President Alan H. Oaks talks about hearing it. He said, quote, I remember when I first heard the news. I sat down on a pile of dirt and beckoned to my boys. This is the scene etched in my memory of this unforgettable event. Sitting on a pile of dirt as I told my boys that all worthy members of the church would now be ordained and weeping as I spoke. 
Um, this really, really changed things uh, for the church. Um, and it was a national, international event. Time and Newsweek magazine stopped their presses on weekend editions to get stories in. It made the front page of a number of newspapers, including the New York Times. And it really, really did change the way that we do uh, missionary work in and around the world and has led to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people of African descent joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <clears throat> But just to elaborate a little bit on that official introduction given in the Doctrine and Covenants, here's a few things we know. Uh, when the policy was announced in 1852, President Young really presented it as a temporary policy. For instance, when it was announced, he said, quote, The time will come when they, black members, will have the privilege of all we have the privilege of and more. Unquote. Uh, later presidents of the church said the same thing. Wilford Woodruff said the day will come when that race will be redeemed and possess all the blessings. President Heber J. Grant in 1928 uh, said that um, the policy would stand until such time as the Lord will see fit to withdraw the decree. Two decades later, President David O. McKay said, sometimes in the Lord's eternal plan, the black members will be given the right to hold the priesthood. President Harold B. Lee said, black members will achieve full status. We're just waiting for that time. So there were a lot of indications by the presidents of the church that this was a temporary practice. Uh, it went on longer than I think most of them had anticipated. And it's really President Spencer W. Kimball, who's the person that's called to revisit the practice and ask the Lord for revelation to know if it's time for the practice to end. Uh, President Kimball, by his own admission, and by the way, there's a wonderful article published in BYU Studies um, by President Kimball's son, Edward L. Kimball. Edward L. Kimball got a chance to interview President Kimball, interview all the major participants in the Revelation, and he just gives a, a, a marvelous background on how the Revelation was received and how the policy uh, unfolded and was, was ended. Um, he noted, uh, in 1977, President Kimball began an exhaustive personal study of the scriptures, as well as the statements of church leaders since Joseph Smith, and asked other general authorities to share their personal feelings relative to the longstanding church policy. He led discussions with church leaders at length on numerous occasions in the preceding weeks and months, and President Kimball sought diligently to know the Lord's will in the question. President Kimball himself wrote, I prayed with much fervency. I knew that something was before us that was extremely important to many of the children of God. He went to the temple alone, especially on Sundays and Saturdays, when he could have it alone. And he also said, I went for some time as I was searching for this because I wanted to be sure. Now, President um, Kimball received the revelation in 1978. Francis M. Gibbons, who was the secretary of the First Presidency, wrote that on Tuesday, May 30th, 1978, President Kimball read to his counselors a tentative statement that he had written in longhand removing all restrictions from black members except those restrictions as to worthiness that rest upon all and then told them he had a good feeling about it. Then two days later, he meets with um, all the other members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve who were available. Uh, according to the records we have, they counseled for two hours together on the subject and each had the chance to express himself freely. At 2.45 p.m., they formed a prayer circle around the temple altar and the Lord confirmed the wishes of the brethren to rescind the policy that prohibited African blacks from receiving the priesthood. Now, a, a few notes of controversy surrounding this. Uh, there were two apostles that weren't present when the revelation was given. One was Delbert L. Stapley, who was in the hospital, and Marky Peterson, uh, who was in South America. 
Um, both of these brethren, Elder Stapley and Elder Peterson, were contacted by the First Presidency and informed of the revelation. In fact, Elder Peterson, who was in Quito, Ecuador, received a personal call from President Spencer W. Kimball, and Elder Peterson later said, I was delighted to know that a new revelation had come from the Lord. I felt the fact of the revelation's coming was more striking than the decision itself. On the telephone, I told President Kimball that I fully sustained both the revelation and him, 100%. Um, all three members of the First Presidency visited Elder Stapley, who was in the hospital, and he gave his approval of the revelation. Support from the First Presidency and the Twelve was unanimous. And I, I've sometimes heard people say, oh, they, they did it without two apostles there. It's just absolutely crystal clear that even though Elder Peterson and Elder Stapley couldn't be there for different reasons, they made sure that they knew and that they had their approval and that the decision was unanimous before they moved forward with uh, announcing it. Uh, they presented it in a uh, general conference on September 30th, 1978, and it was uh, sustained at that time. In fact, Official Declaration 2, like Official Declaration 1, is not the revelation itself. Uh, it is an acknowledgment of the revelation. Uh, it says, among other things, uh, he has heard our prayers. This is paragraph three. And, upon, and by revelation has confirmed that the long promised day has come when every faithful, worthy man in the church may receive the holy priesthood with the power to exercise his divine authority and enjoy with his loved ones every blessing that flows therefrom, including the blessings of the temple. Accordingly, all worthy male members of the church may be ordained to the priesthood without regard for race or color. Priesthood leaders are instructed to follow the policy of carefully interviewing all candidates for ordinations to enter into the Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood to ensure that they meet the established standards of worthiness. And then they add, we declare with soberness that the Lord has now made known his will for the blessing of all his children throughout the earth, and it will hearken to the voice of his authorized servants and prepare them to receive every blessing of the gospel. Now, this was, like I said, uh, a, a big change and one that the leaders of the church approached really cautiously. Just like the historical introduction says, it is true that Joseph Smith, um, that there were several people of African descent ordained during Joseph Smith's lifetime. The most famous is probably Elijah Abel, who was ordained as 70. Now, a 70 wasn't the exact same back then as it is today. It was more of a missionary call. Uh, there's another man named Q. Walker Lewis, um, uh, who was ordained to the priesthood that we know less about. Joseph Smith um, was a realist when it came to the questions of race. Like he, he asked that the elders of the church not instruct slaves without permission from the people that own them. But Joseph Smith was also an abolitionist too. When he ran for president in 1844, part of his platform was to abolish slavery by the year 1850. Now, interestingly, Brigham Young also shared a lot of these views, uh, which makes the 1852 announcement surprising. For instance, in March of 1847, Brigham Young was approached by a man named William McCrary, who was a black member of the church, and told President Young that he didn't, he knew he couldn't hold the priesthood because of his race. According to minutes we have from that meeting, uh, President Young actually said, of one blood, God made all flesh, and we don't care about color. And at the same meeting, President Young made reference to Q. Walker Lewis and said, one of our best elders is an African. Um, nevertheless, in 1852, President Young announced the policy uh, and uh, explained, like I mentioned earlier, that 
the black members of the church would eventually have all the blessings of the gospel and more. Now, throughout the 19th century, there were a number of explanations given as to why the policy existed. An official um, gospel topics essay published by the church just basically said none of these explanations is accepted as official church doctrine. So we can take them as, as well-meaning explanations given by contemporary leaders of the church in that time, but not official instructions as to why the priesthood was restricted. The best official statement is the historical introduction, the Doctrine and Covenants, which says we don't exactly know the reasons why this happened. Now, um, when the revelation is given in 1978, it changes things. And I want to share a few reminiscences from uh, black members of the church who were members of the time but weren't able to hold the priesthood. One of them is a name you might um, remember named Helvetio Martins. Uh, Avecchio and Ruda Martins were both black members of the church in Brazil, and they were stunned when official declaration two was given. Uh, Avecchio later wrote, I could not contain my emotions. Ruda and I went to our bedroom, knelt down and prayed. We wept as we thanked our father in heaven for an event that he had, that we had only dreamed about. The day actually arrived in our mortal lives. Two weeks later, Avecchio and his son Marcus both received the Aaronic priesthood, and then a week later, he received the Melchizedek priesthood and then was given the privilege of ordaining his son. Um, And I actually know Marcus Martins. He's a religion teacher. He used to teach at BYU-Hawaii. Helvetio said, I felt I would explode with joy, happiness, and contentment. What an incredible experience for me and for Marcus. Now, if the name Helvetio Martins sounds familiar, that's because a few years later, in 1990, uh, Elder Martins was the first black person of black African descent called as a general authority of the church. Uh, when he was called, he spoke in general conference and said, I was not called by the Lord to represent any specific race, nationality, or ethnic group of his children. I was called by prophecy, revelation on the laying on of hands to represent God's children, be they white, black, or any other color, wherever they live on church. Less than 13 years earlier, I was given the priesthood. Now I stood at a pulpit with some of the greatest men of all time and had occupied with the living prophets and apostles seated directly behind me. Now, this is just one of hundreds of thousands of stories of blessings that came because of the revelation that was given to President Spencer W. Kimball, the First Presidency, and the other members of the Quorum of the Twelve. This has been an immense blessing to so many people. When, when I was a missionary uh, in Florida, I met a man who was a member of the church before official declaration two was given. And he was just a young man, believed in the gospel, had a sincere testimony of Jesus Christ, of the restoration of Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and was so overjoyed uh, to know that now he could hold the priesthood and he could serve a mission. By the time I met him, when I was serving in Florida in the late 90s, this man had served as a bishop. He he was serving as the uh, Sunday school president, the ward that I was serving in at the time, and was just a tremendous blessing to know that. So um, while official declaration one and two aren't the revelations themselves, they do commemorate momentous events that change the course of the history of the church. And it's worth your time to, to read them and maybe sit down and discuss with your loved ones. Um, some of the events surrounding them. It's also not a bad idea to go to the Gospel Topics essays, which you can find in the Church History tab in Gospel Library, and read a little bit about um, plural marriage and race and the priesthood, just so you understand it.
Now, with our time limited, let's move on to the Articles of Faith, which are found right at the end of the Pearl of Great Price. The Articles of Faith are part of a, a big letter that was written by Joseph Smith at the request of a guy named John Wentworth. It's sometimes informally referred to as the Wentworth Letter, and I love the Wentworth Letter. I would be totally okay if they decided to canonize and put the entire Wentworth Letter into the Scriptures. As such, they've only canonized the Doctrine and co- or the Articles of Faith, which are found right at the end of the Wentworth letter. Um, John Wentworth uh, was the editor of a paper called the Chicago Democrat, and he requested a brief summary of the history and doctrines of the church. We we did a little research and found out that Wentworth's request came because he had a friend named George Barstow, who was a Boston lawyer who was working on a history of New Hampshire. And neither Wentworth nor Barstow actually used the material that Joseph Smith uh, sent to them. The original letter is lost, but a version of the letter appeared in the church newspaper Times and Seasons. So if John Wentworth and George Barstow weren't going to use the um, the letter Joseph Smith wrote, Joseph Smith decided, well, this is good stuff. I'm going to publish it uh, in the Times and Seasons. And later it was put into the Wentworth letter. And later it was placed into the Pearl of Great Price. So um, the Articles of Faith actually appear at the end of the Wentworth letter, which for the most part contains a history Joseph Smith wrote. Uh, the Wentworth letter describes uh, Joseph Smith's first vision. It uh, describes the translation of the Book of Mormon and the rise and progress of the early uh, church. Um, Brigham Young uh, really, really liked all this material. In fact, uh, Brigham Young's brother, Joseph, uh, was the first one to create kind of a, a statement containing what he described as the creeds, doctrines, sentiments, or religious notions of the church. Then in 1840, Parley P. Pratt condensed parts of the History of the Late Persecution, a pamphlet he had written to summarize church beliefs too. Um, Orson Pratt published a pamphlet called An Interesting Account of Several Remarkable Visions, and uh, this contained uh, several stor- short statements of belief. Uh, it's likely Joseph Smith probably drew on all these resource letter, uh, resources when he wrote the Articles of Faith, and the Articles of Faith are really just Joseph Smith explaining uh, the basic beliefs of the church. Uh, so in 1851, the Articles of Faith were selected by um, Franklin D. Richards, who's president of the British Mission, and he chose to print them in a new short little volume for the British saints called The Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price was published in Britain. The British saints loved it. Many of them brought it with them when they immigrated to America. And in 1877, they created a second edition of The Pearl of Great Price. And at that time, Orson Pratt, who supervised the work, gave the articles a title, Articles of Our Faith. In 1888, the Pearl Great Price officially became part of the scriptural canon, one of the standard works. And at that time, the title was just simplified to Articles of Faith. And since the 1902 edition of the Pearl Great Price, their uh, final title has been the Articles of Faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, these articles aren't by any means a comprehensive account of church beliefs. You might notice some things that are left out that are pretty important, like it doesn't talk at length about the temple, but they're a great way to introduce the basic tenets of the gospel to uh, people that might not know a a ton about the church. So think of them kind of as uh, the gospel for beginners, Latter-day Saint belief uh, 101, basically, and then things like the temple come along in in higher courses. So let's start with verse uh, 1, Article Faith 1, we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. Um, this is kind of a, a direct acknowledgement. The Latter-day Saints believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but they do not believe in the Trinity. Um, the Trinity, or the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all a single God, 
uh, is something that most Orthodox Christians believe in, but not Latter-day Saints. You might note, Joseph Smith uh, noted in his own account of the First Vision, the one that is written in 1838 and that is canonized in the Pearl of Great Price, that when the sun appeared to him, that he was told specifically the creeds were an abomination in his sight. And the Trinity was based on... Um, the creeds, specifically the Nicene and the Athanasian creed. Uh, Joseph Smith is told that these creeds are an abomination, and he starts out with his experience literally seeing the Father and the Son. So our belief in a separate Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost doesn't come because any of the Christian creeds say anything. It's because of the direct experience Joseph Smith has in the Sacred Grove. Now, in recent years, some members of the church have wrestled with this a little bit. (laughs) Maybe they want us to be a little bit more accepted by our Christian friends and have talked about a kind of social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism is the idea that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate persons, but they're totally harmonious. You can dress it up like that. Um, anyway, slice it. We we are a little bit different. I think that's totally, totally okay. It's not just the first vision. It's multiple visions, including section 76, which describes Jesus and, Fa- and the Father as two separate beings. In section 76, verse 23, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon said they saw the Son, even on the right hand of God, and heard his voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Again, just over and over again, uh, we believe that uh, they're separate. President uh, Hinckley was pretty direct about this. He just, in a statement in General Conference, said, we do not accept the Athanasian Creed. We do not accept the Nicene Creed or any other creed based on the tradition and conclusions of men. We do accept, as the basis for our doctrine, the statement of the prophet Joseph Smith when he prayed for wisdom in the woods, that the light rested upon Upon me, and I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. So, Article of Faith 1 kind of kicks us off with a bang. And then move on to Article of Faith 2, which rejects another thing taught by a lot of uh, Orthodox Christians. Article of Faith 2 says, We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Um, If you look through the statements of Latter-day Saint leaders, they're very, very hesitant to use the phrase original sin to describe what Adam and Eve did. They use the phrase transgression. Uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith said, I never speak of the part Eve took in the fall as a sin, nor do I accuse Adam of a sin. This was a transgression of the law, but not a sin. It was something Adam and Eve had to do. Now, that's not to say the Latter-day Saints don't believe there are consequences to the choice made by Adam and Eve. The Book of Mormon prophet Samuel taught that because of the fall, All men and women are, quote, cut off from the presence of the Lord and are considered dead, both as to things temporal and to things spiritual. That's in Helaman 14, verse 6. But rather than seeing the fall of Adam and Eve as a great tragedy, Latter-day Saints believe the fall was a vital part of Heavenly Father's plan for his sons and daughters. The teachings found in the Book of Mormon essentially transform the fall from a tragic event to a glorious one, but clarify also that Eden was not a paradise. Paradise is not the word I would use to describe the Garden of Eden. The Book of Mormon um, has teachings from the prophet Lehi, who's drawing from the brass plates a much older and pure record, and he teaches that there was no change, no joy, no misery, no good, no sin, and no possibility for Adam and Eve to keep the Lord's commandments to have children while they were in Eden. Um, now that some of that stuff is good, no sin, that's good. No misery. That's good. But he also mentions there's no joy. 
There's no righteousness and that there's no change. Therefore, Adam and Eve can't fulfill the Lord's commandment to have children. So what Adam and Eve do is a transgression. They have to violate the law to not eat the fruit in order to keep the law to multiply and replenish, the Book of Mormon clarifies. And what's the difference between a sin and a transgression? Um, a transgression is when we cross a boundary, but maybe for a good reason. Now, again, transgression can be synonymous with sin, but but the analogy I use with my classes is this. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife woke me up in the middle of the night and um, said that her water had broken. And so it was 3 a.m. We were headed to the hospital and I drove on a road where I knew it was 35 miles per hour going much, much faster than 35 miles per hour. Um, now, was this a sin? I don't think it was against the will of God because I had to get my wife to the hospital. The command, thou shalt not let thy wife die while she is in labor, is more important than the speed limit. I think if a cop had pulled me over, he would have given me a ticket. He would have escorted me to the hospital. Uh, in that particular case, uh, I committed a transgression. I don't think what I did was against the will of God, and I don't feel guilty about it. I also think that what Adam and Eve did was a transgression. It brought about consequences like sin and death, but it also opened the door to righteousness and eternal life. Um, as part of the church teachings in the fall, Adam and Eve, who are often seen by Christians as foolish and unwise, are rehabilitated. Adam, in Latter-day Saint thought, is the archangel Michael, the great leader who overthrew Satan. You can see that in Doctrine and Covenants, section 27, verse 11. Eve and her daughters, who are sometimes derided as the weaker sex, are also given their proper due. In fact, an article published in the Latter-day Saint magazine, Women's Exponent, in 1879, went so far as to declare, quote, we are taught that Eve was the first to sin. Well, she was simply more progressive than Adam. She did not want to live in the beautiful garden forever and be nobody. And that captures as much as anything our feelings on Adam and Eve. Now, moving on from Adam and Eve, the atonement is addressed in Article Faith 3. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. This is at the heart of everything we believe. But you can see Joseph Smith's progression from the Godhead to Adam and Eve to the atonement of Jesus Christ. When Joseph Smith was alive and he was asked to summarize what Latter-day Saints believe, in 1838, he said, the fundamental principle of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages. So Joseph Smith is saying, hey, the trunk of the tree for us is Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice. Everything else is a branch, and it's important and vital but the heart of what we believe is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now, moving on, now that you know about the Godhead, about your situation, and about Jesus Christ, the first principles and ordinance of the gospel, this is Article of Faith 4, our first faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second repentance, third baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth laying out of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, this is an interesting uh, addition, too, because one of the things Joseph Smith restored through his work to place back the plain and precious truths that have been removed from the Bible is that Adam and Eve also had faith in Jesus Christ, were baptized, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Adam was the first person to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, was baptized. This is all found in Moses chapter 6, verses 64 through 68, and Adam received the gift of the Holy Ghost. We assume 
that if Adam received these teachings and principles and ordinances, so did Eve. And the ordinances that were given in this time are now extended to all people. It's even possible for us to uh, perform these ordinances on behalf of people that are deceased because of uh, the, the the power that Elijah restored in the Kirtland Temple. So we're doing this work on behalf of everybody, the living and the dead, giving them an opportunity to accept the invitation to come to this great feast that Jesus Christ will initiate when he comes back to earth. Now, moving on, article of faith number five, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. This is another big difference between Latter-day Saints and other Christians in that we believe that a person uh, receives a call to the ministry from God. In most churches, um, most um, men and women that lead other churches, wonderful people, but would say that they decided on their own. They received a theological degree or they went into it as a professional calling. We believe that priesthood authority is given to men and to women um, as they're allowed to serve. Um, priesthood authority is something that's given to all officers of the church, male and female. It's true that certain offices in the church are held only by men, and other offices are only held by women, but both genders hold priesthood authority. For instance, Jean B. Bingham, uh, when she was serving as president of the General Relief Society, uh, said, in my callings, because I'm serving with priesthood authority given me by one who holds the keys, there have been numerous times when I have had thoughts or words given to me that are just what a young woman or Leaf Society sister or primary child needed to hear. I know that those words came because of the priesthood authority I was given when I was set apart for that calling. So whether you're a primary teacher or Leaf Society president, a bishop or a deacon's quorum president, you have priesthood authority. People in president offices, like the bishop, who's the president of the priest quorum, the elders quorum president, the deacons quorum president, and uh, the teachers quorum president have priesthood keys. But everybody that operates in the church receives authority, which is priesthood authority. Now, Article of Faith 6, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Latter-day Saints uh, do not believe that the modern church precisely mirrors the organization of the primitive church. These offices are, are, are general. There's things in, in the church today that probably existed anciently, like the Relief Society in primary, but may have gone by different names. We've even played around with the offices in the church a little bit. Um, like uh, 70 used to be kind of a general missionary calling. Now it's a general authority calling because the church has gotten big enough that we need more than just 15 prophets and apostles to lead the church. Uh, some of the offices mentioned here have received modern names too. Like you probably recognize prophets and teachers, but pastors uh, today in the church are commonly known as bishops. And the term evangelist, according to Joseph Smith, is actually a New Testament term for a patriarch. In an 1839 discourse, Joseph Smith taught an evangelist is a patriarch. Wherever the church of Christ is established in the earth, there should be a patriarch for the benefit of the posterity of the saints, as it was with Jacob in giving his patriarchal blessing unto his sons. It's possible that new offices and roles may be revealed in the church, but the essential principle taught in the sixth article of faith is that the church is led by those with priesthood authority who receive revelation from God. Now, moving on to article of faith seven, we believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healings, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. There's three different places in the scriptures. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 13, Moroni 10, and Doctrine and Covenants 46, that all list the spiritual gifts that can be given to a person who has the gift of the Holy Ghost. In fact, these lists, as we understand it, are just the beginning of the spiritual gifts. 
Um, the Lord counseled all not have every gift given unto them. There are many gifts and to every man is given a gift by the spirit of God. Spiritual gifts are given to allow us to bless and help others. We really do believe in healing and manifestations of the spirit and revelation. Many of you have probably seen and recognized those. Article of Faith 8, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Now, this is vital too, because it opens up two ideas. Number one, Latter-day Saints don't believe that the Bible is inerrant. We believe that the Bible is our chief book of scripture. It's critically important. I'm so looking forward to studying the Old Testament next year. I love the Old and New Testament. But we also believe that the Bible was created and compiled by mortal men and women, and that it has errors and mistakes that crept into it. The Book of Mormon says that things were taken out of the Bible. Um, uh, The Book of Mormon proves that there's more scripture out there, as does the Doctrine, Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. In fact, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland noted this article of faith and its belief in open canon, which makes Latter-day Saints different. Elder Holland taught, the fact of the matter is that virtually every prophet of the Old and the New Testament has added scripture to that received by his predecessors. If the Old Testament words of Moses were sufficient, as some could have mistakenly thought them to be, then why the subsequent prophecies of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, who follows him? To say nothing of Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, and all the rest, if one revelation to one prophet in one moment of time is sufficient for all time, what justifies these many others? What justifies them was made clear by Jehovah himself when he said to Moses, my works are without end and my words never cease. That's Moses 1.4. So the the articles of faith also elicit an open canon of scripture. Uh, That's followed up by uh, article of faith 9. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does reveal. We believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This just opens up the idea that we believe in revelation, that the scriptures, as wonderful as they are and as vital as they are to us, are not finished yet. Um, Elder Holland uh, phrased it this way. He said, the scriptures are not the ultimate source of knowledge for the Latter-day Saints. They are manifestations of the ultimate source. The ultimate source of knowledge and authority for a Latter-day Saint is the living God. The communication of those gifts comes from God as a living, vibrant, divine revelation. Now, moving on, Article of Faith 10, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the 10 tribes, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. This is absolutely vital to understanding Latter-day Saints, too. We believe that in the latter days, the gathering of Israel is occurring, and that it's not just occurring in and around the lands where Israel traditionally lived in the Holy Land, but that America is part of the story. I think if Joseph Smith were asked about this today, he would say Africa and Asia and Europe and Australia, every place around the world is a vital part of this story that Israel is being gathered. But we also believe that there are some special things that are going to happen, that um The new Jerusalem is going to be built here on the American continent. That's alongside the old Jerusalem, the original Jerusalem that's going to be built up as well, and that Christ will return to earth. We believe in a literal second coming of Christ and that the earth will be governed by these two divine capitals, Zion in America and Israel in Asia. Verses 11 and 12, Articles of Faith 11 and 12, are both kind of linked to each other. We claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow men the same privilege, let them worship how, where, 
or what they may. And we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Now, just two commentaries on this. Um, we, if we expect to be treated fairly by the religions, have to be fair to those religions in turn. Uh, Joseph, Joseph Smith um, said this, uh, the principles of intolerance and bigotry never had place in this kingdom nor in my breast. Nothing can reclaim the human mind from its ignorance, bigotry, superstition, etc. But those grand and sublime principles of equal rights and universal freedom to all men. Hence, in all governments or political transactions, a man's religious opinion should never be called into question. A man should be judged by the law, independent of religious prejudice. Likewise, when it comes to uh, obeying the laws and sustaining the laws, uh, it's okay for us to try and pass laws that that we think make a better place. Uh, President Alan H. Oaks warned believers should not be deterred by the familiar charge they're trying to legislate morality. Many areas of the law are based on Judeo-Christian morality and have been for centuries. Our civilization is based on morality and cannot exist without it. Latter-day Saints work to bring people into harmony uh, with our beliefs, but if they have different beliefs than us, it's okay. Um, I am so grateful um, for my friends of other faiths, for the things that they've taught me. And I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't ask them to change their beliefs if they sincerely believe, but I also hope, uh, that they'll listen to what I have to say and sincerely ponder and pray about it. Now, the final article of faith, number 13, which a lot of, you know, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say we follow the admonition of Paul. We believe all things, we hope all things, we have endured many things, and hope to be able to endure all things. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. So um, this reflects the idea that Latter-day Saints find truth in all places. I love a, this quote by Brigham Young where he said, Every accomplishment, every polished grace, every useful attainment in mathematics, music, and all sciences and art belong to the saints. Latter-day Saints look to everywhere around the world to find examples of goodness. Um, uh, Brigham Young loved theater. At one point, Brigham Young said, if I was placed on a cannibal island and had the gask of civilizing its people, I would build a theater. Um, John Taylor, Joseph Smith, all presidents of the church have talked about the importance of education and the fact that we can find good teachings, good people, and inspired um, revelation from God in all cultures. God loves all of his children. And Latter-day Saints believe that we have the true gospel and the true church for sure. But we also look to the world around us and the people around us and see the good and find the good anywhere we can find it and try to incorporate it into our lives and religions. So that's official declarations one and two and the articles of faith. There is so much to cover here. I could have gone on for a couple hours, but I just want you to know that I believe in prophets and apostles. I believe that Joseph Smith, who wrote the articles of faith, is a prophet. I believe Wilford Woodruff, who received official declaration one, is a prophet. And I wholeheartedly believe that Spencer W. Kimball, who received that wonderful revelation that leads to official declaration too is also a prophet. I'm grateful for the doctrine and covenants. I'm grateful for the teachings of the gospel. And I leave you with this, my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2022, expect wonderful changes from Come Follow Me. David Ridges is handing the reins over to capable hands with Come Follow Me made easier. Hosted by Linda Cherry and joined by five dedicated and knowledgeable masters of the scriptures, Casey Griffiths, Brian Reedy, Lori Denning, Robert Miller, and Sam Castor. Starting December 13th, 
You can find it on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes and more. Brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media.